Hello and welcome into The Harvest. My name is Andrew Stroud, and this podcast is dedicated to helping you be a disciple and make disciples in the 21st century. Um, We get the chance to bring on guests, and today I've got a good friend, Brad Palm. Brad and I have known each other for, uh, I think, 15 years now. Does that sound right? Yeah, we we linked up back in 2009, so it's been a number of years. Almost 15. But um, I wanted to have a conversation with you, Brad. We, had, we were actually just talking before we hit record. We've been talking about having this conversation since uh, 2017. And why don't you take us back? What do you remember about that conversation back in 2017? Set the stage for us in terms of where you were at, where we were when we were talking about that. Yeah, so 2017, it was... Uh likely i think it was in november or early december um that meeting and uh i was in a wheelchair and you so graciously were uh, helping me when i got myself wore out pushed me around the dc capital area so i uh, i was recovering from injuries sustained in a uh, helicopter crash at walter reed medical center in uh in maryland and uh yeah we we had the conversation then about coming on and recording uh, telling a little bit of my story and what God was doing through that that accident, uh, and and so here we are uh, years later, right? <laughs> well, there's just more story to tell. Um, but let me um, let me introduce you to our audience. A lot of folks may know you because um, we run in the same circles, and a lot of those people listen to the show. But I also know there there are many who do not know you. But you you grew up in Maryland. Um, you went to college in West Virginia and you were on a path. Was it electrical engineering? What was it that you graduated with your degree in? Yeah, it was electrical engineering, um, bachelor's of science there at West Virginia University. And you did that a little bit, but that didn't last very long, right? So tell us a little bit about, you are a pilot in the uh, US Army right now. How did that come about from going to school for engineering to going into the service and flying helicopters? Yeah, so I I grew up in a Christian home uh, and was raised in the church. And when I went off to college, I would say that was the first time that that my faith was really tested. And uh, I was, um, I I really described my walk with the Lord as as non-existent. I was the prodigal son in Luke 15. It was, uh, um, I knew God, but I didn't have any idea of what Lordship looked like in my life. And so, up until that point, I think my I was defined by my achievements, uh, mainly through sports as well as grades. Um, and so when I got home uh, from college, I had a I was an electrical engineering intern and got offered a full time job and was planning to live at home. And then uh, after paying off my college debt, getting out on my own. And uh, that lasted for about 30 days after graduation in May of 20 of 2003, dating myself a little bit now, um, but graduated in May of 2003, about a month later, ended up uh, pursuing um, a contract with the U.S. Army to basically, they call it street to seat or high school to flight school, basically come right in, do basic training, and then go right into warrant officer candidate school through flight school. So it was, I would say, um, with some of the decisions I was making at the time and my lack of having a, a genuine relationship with Jesus, I was looking for the next accomplishment to, to fill that need. And that was the direction I took, as well as there was you know, contributing factors with the World Trade Center 
um, that fell. I remember watching it distinctly from my my room, uh, my dorm, my apartment really at WVU. And so there was some desire there to also um, serve and serve the country and um, be of use in that regard. Yeah. And again, it's so crazy because obviously we just wrapped up this past year in Afghanistan, but I think, um, you know, I think that was the longest war that our country has ever been involved in. And there are, there are people probably listening to this show today that don't really remember, like when you made that choice back in 2003, um, you know, having your degree and already being in an internship to, to change paths and to go into the military and ultimately become a pilot. I mean, you, you knew that that meant basically going into combat almost, almost certainly. And that was, I would think the, the purpose behind you making that choice at that time. Yeah, there was definitely a, uh, a call to, to serve. Um, although it hadn't been something that was passed on through my family. Um, my grandfather was drafted uh, and went to Korea years past, but uh, it was definitely something that um, it, it hit close to home. I can remember on the college campus, there was a, a guard unit that was getting ready to deploy. And uh, it was actually surprisingly enough, a Chinook helicopter that came and flew over the downtown campus and did a couple laps uh, flying an American flag out of the back of the, the helicopter before they flew, uh, which was likely to an embarkation point where they shipped the aircraft overseas to go to combat. So um, interesting looking back on how my path has um, ended up flying Chinooks in combat. So, Well, that, you know, at 2003, you come into the Army. I know you said you had had that background, and I think many of us do. We grow up, especially here in the United States or in the West, you, you might grow up hearing stories about God, maybe even being... Um, pretty close to a Christian culture. But of course, you know, there's an old saying that, that God doesn't have any grandchildren, that, that it doesn't matter how you were raised. If you were raised around people who were close to God, uh, each of us has to make a choice at some point um, in terms of what role God is going to play in our lives and, and uh, how serious faith is going to be. So in 2003, that really, it doesn't sound like that was the case. Now you and I met in, in 2008, maybe just, sketch for us what happened between 03 and 08, uh, your flying helicopters and, and how that all played out. What brought you to Fort Lewis, Washington, which is where you and I met in uh, 2009? Yeah, so um, I went from basic training in 2003 into 2004 uh, and from basic training right into Warrant Officer Candidate School at Fort Rucker, Alabama. Uh, the home of Army Aviation. So everyone who flies anything for the Army ends up going through Fort Rucker. So I did my warrant officer candidate training there and then right into flight school and actually was qualified initially in a Black Hawk. And so when I graduated there, I went and served my first uh, utilization tour three years in Japan um, from 2005 until 2008. And then from there, I assessed for the 160th SOAR. Uh, it's the Special Operation Aviation Regiment. Um, and I was accepted into that, uh, that position in that unit. And so that basically started um, what brought me to Fort Lewis. So from Japan, I PCS to Fort Lewis, Washington, actually in early 2008. And I was only on the ground for maybe two weeks. And then I went um, on temporary duty. We call it TDY. Um, and from there, I bounced back to Fort Rucker, where I got a transition into the Chinook helicopter. Uh, from there, I went to 
Fort Campbell, Kentucky, which is where the um, the regiment headquarters for the 160th SOAR is located. And that's where I went through the officer green platoon training um, and learned the tactics, techniques, and skills of the 160th flying Chinook helicopters. And once that training was complete, I found my way back to Fort Lewis, Washington. Uh, and kind of an interesting story, ran into also probably another guy that uh, is known on your podcast and with, with a lot of the people, Jamie Fisher. Um, it was a rather interesting encounter. I was getting my combat gear issued to me actually to go on my first deployment shortly after I arrived to the unit. And uh, Jamie started inquiring of my relationship with Jesus. And so it was, uh, it was a bit awkward. And then he got my number. Uh, I didn't know if he was asking me on a date or what the deal was, but uh, he's a true brother in Christ. And, and I started to meet with him uh, in the mornings and he really started to unpack uh, what a relationship with Jesus is supposed to look like. Um, and that that is basically how I found myself uh, introduced to, to you, Andrew. I remember distinctly uh, coming to your house shortly after I met Jamie uh, and then introduced to the navigator ministry that was uh, that was going on there at Fort Lewis. Yeah. So one of the big themes of of this ministry into the harvest is, you know, ordinary people in everyday places. So I know when you said you met Jamie, this was just this was in the workplace um, this was not a religious setting at all, correct? No, it was quite the opposite. He was handing me uh, ballistic plates and body armor and uh, a bunch of equipment to go on my first deployment. He was at the mm -hmm. time working as a, a supply technician um, on our compound there at the Joint Base Lewis-McChord now. Um, and it was a, a short time that he was doing that job just prior to him changing professions. And he mm. just was bold enough to share and start asking questions of someone that he, he never knew. And it's made a, an indelible mm. mark on my life, certainly changed my trajectory and path completely. You and I have so many stories like that over the years where you have those those you, you could say chance encounters. Of course, we believe, you know, God is ordering our lives and guiding us. And part of that is is allowing us to cross paths with people who end up becoming lifelong friends. I know you and Jamie are still really close here um, you know, 15 years later, he and I are still really close 15 years later. And it all started with a, uh, like you said, just a courageous, uh, conversation on his part, just to open that door. But what was it that was going on in your life? Do you think, uh, spiritually that made you receptive to that kind of conversation? Yeah, I think my, my childhood, my upbringing, um, the seeds were certainly planted. My parents did a great job with prioritizing church and family and, uh, Christian morals and values. And so the concepts weren't far from my mind. It was just a matter of really putting them into practice and seeing people live them out practically. Like, what does it look like to practice lordship day to day? What does it look, look like to seek first the kingdom? Uh, there's a lot of principles that you can read in scripture that are very difficult, I think, to put feet to. Um, and when you're in a community of people that are living it out, they're organically living out their faith mm -hmm. in the everyday places of life. Um, it's attractive. Uh, and I think the seed planted uh, in me by my parents early on and, and through my experience with knowing God transformed at Fort Lewis into a true relationship with God um, as I submitted to his lordship and really sought a relationship with him. So I think that was the catalyst for growth. 
Do you think that there was any part of it where like you're, you're one of the most high achieving people I know. Um, I know we kind of just blew through your story there, but I mean, to become a pilot in the army, not everyone can do that. And then I know we quickly ran through from 03 to 08, but, um, you became a pilot in, um, one sixtieth SOAR, which is a special operations aviation unit, which is, um, which is elite. Not anyone can get into that. In fact, you have to be a pilot for a certain amount of time and then you have to assess, you have to get through, then you have to train. There's, there's so many steps that you have to be willing to push yourself to do. So I'm just curious, like, do you, do you feel like you had done these things? Um, because at this point you're in your, your mid twenties, maybe even your late twenties and do you feel like maybe that there was still something more you were looking for? Like you said, you, you, that, that, that deeper life and that, that community uh, that goes beyond just um, I guess, worldly accomplishments. And I, I don't want to put any words in your mouth, but I'm just kind of curious myself. Yeah, no, you hit the nail on the head, Andrew. I think, you know, when I talked about, you know, high school defined by grades and athletics and achievement and college, you know, get a good GPA, graduate, get a good education. It, it was very achievement based, like works based. Hmm. Um, and so I think even seeking to be in the 160th was uh, I wanted to be with the best to fly with the best. And then I feel like as I as I started to un- unpack my own heart in that area, God really revealed that um, it, it's not through my works. Uh, and I was trying to fill that void in my heart that that was that God shaped hole with with accomplishments and things of the world. Uh, and until I think God really started to show me that through the relationships and through getting into the word, I think that was really where the transformation started to happen. Um, I was definitely, I think it was accomplishment based that brought me into the one sixtieth, And I think God definitely directed that path circumstantially, even though I wasn't submitting to his lordship at the time. But uh, what he did is he planted me in a unit that really needed a believer that was going to be bold to share his faith with those that were there. And so my path to get to the 160th, I think, was selfishly motivated, although God was able in that place to change my heart and change the way I view relationships and the people in my life uh, to make me a tool for his kingdom. And so I think uh, there was a transformation and we gloss over it. Right. But I was I was in that frying pan of refinement for mm-hmm. a number of years. It didn't it began in 2009 uh, as I met Jamie and met the ministry. But uh to strip off some of the selfishness and some of the uh, um, uh, all of the worldliness and the ways that I define success in my own eyes to look at mm. what God considers, who am I in God's eyes? What is yeah. success in the eyes of Jesus? And so um, looking at, you know, some of the scriptures, what does my life look like that ends in Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And it's not, you know, acing a test or flying for a unit. It's a, a life of submission and devotion to him and accomplishing his will, proclaim mm-hmm. his kingdom to others. When I think about the life of the Apostle Paul in, in Galatians chapter one, he says that uh, that God had set him apart um, from birth and called him from his mother's womb. And yet mm-hmm. it wasn't until... God was pleased to reveal his son, Jesus, to Paul, that Paul's life changed and went on a whole new trajectory. And in fact, um, 
you know, Paul went from being someone who was actively fighting against Jesus and his followers and the early church to being someone that we look back now as a pillar, you know, someone that God used in a mighty way. A lot of our New Testament letters, most of our New New Testament words are, you know, came through Paul and uh, he really was um, used by God in a mighty way to grow the early church and to help it spread across the the Roman world at that time. Um, And yet, you know, um, there was a whole process that happened there. It wasn't until um, God was pleased to reveal Jesus to Saul, but he, he had called him from, from, from birth. So God had this plan for, for Paul's life. And he was, I think, actively working in Paul's life in, in many ways to shape him. A lot of the things that made Paul so effective once he did come to faith and become a follower of Jesus, these were things he learned back when he was a Pharisee and even um, antagonizing Christians. And I think um, something I see in your life and that I, I've seen in my own and, and in others is that God is teaching us lessons, even in those years where we're blind to him or we're not following him. There are things that we're learning that get redirected um, once we find the truth and begin to follow Jesus. And I think one of those is um, just purposeful pursuit, like being all in. Um, it's just that now it's redirected towards the things that really count, the relationship with God, the relationship with his people and involvement in this greater work that he's doing. So, you know, seeking first the kingdom, um, if you're someone who's, who's been very aggressive or, or um, purposeful about seeking other goals, when God redirects you and you begin seeking first the kingdom, you can bring that same, that same passion and intensity. So, you know, having said that, you know, some of the things that you learned, did, did you see that in your own life where some of the ways that you learned to discipline yourself and, and uh, really pursue high goals, how did you see that carry over into your new life of walking with Christ? And what were some of the new goals that you began to pursue? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think as you were talking, I was thinking about uh, when when Paul or at the time Saul was blinded during his encounter with Jesus and when Ananias laid hands on him and healed him, it was like scales that fell from his eyes. And I, I really do equate my time with the ministry and with Jamie and yourself and others and Mike Chong. And um, there were a lot of men, um, Steve McGee and Eric Abshire, Isaac Bones, Luke Calvert. I know you remember the crew. Uh, mm-hmm. There were a lot of people that uh, I could look to to see. Um, godly men really pursuing that. And so um, it really did help me um, reorient. And I I do believe God used uh, some of my characteristics and traits of um, pursuit of excellence uh, Mm -hmm. in a way that helped me in my pursuit of him. Um, And he he gave me opportunity and positions within the organization to to do that as well. And so I do think that uh, our life prior to Christ can be used and reoriented for for his purpose. And so a, a verse that I think really resonated with me, Second um, Peter 3, 9, where uh, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And I think that's really where God wanted me. He wanted me in a place of repentance, and he wanted me to rely on him uh, and not myself. I think I was one of those, you know, proverbial self-made men. Uh, mm-hmm. It was through my hard work that I've earned these things. 
Um, and I, and that's how I viewed it. Right. And it's a very conceited way of, of hmm. selfishly viewing my own life. And so God really needed to strip that away from me. And I think he did that through his word. And so some of the goals I set, well, I wanted to read the Bible. Um, I had tried the frontal pursuit and uh, <laughs> unsuccessfully, right? I may have made it like to Deuteronomy and I'm like, I, I don't get it. Uh, mm. So my first Bible in a year reading plan, it took me 22 months. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it wasn't quite a year, right? A little bit over, right. but uh, my second time through, it was nine months. And so again, not that that's a metric of success, but I could see my pursuit and and my heart changing and my relationship with Jesus growing. And so that's where I, I go back to. It was a process. Uh, it did take time. I wasn't overnight a professing Christ to my coworkers. It was a, a growth over time uh, to, and, and influence garnered at work that I could leverage for the kingdom. So, yeah. Well, we're going to we're going to fast forward it a little bit here because now. 2009, you really began growing in your relationship with Jesus. And like you said, you're you're in this very unique environment. Um, again, a very, very um, select environment. Not very many people have access to uh, special operations aviation unit, but you're right in there um, now over We're going to talk about um, the crash and, you know, what God taught you both through that um, experience, but also through the recovery that you've been on over the last several years. But how many, do you know how many deployments you were on prior to the deployment where your helicopter went down? Oh, um, that's a great <laughs> can, question. Can you keep track? <laughs> I think it was around, I think it was my 18th deployment was the one in October of 2017. Okay. So I, again, I just want people to understand that like life is not static as you're growing in your faith and, and pursuing Jesus. I mean, you are a man on the go. Um, and these deployments, were they all basically deployments where you were in combat, that you had missions that you were flying, um, combat missions? Yeah. Each, each mission or each deployment was to combat. Um, they were, 100% characterized by um, being in the heat of it uh, right. each and every time. So there was there were no free missions anywhere. It was all in in the zone and uh, purposeful missions. We didn't make milk runs. We only mm -hmm. took you know the elite special forces to the targets that they were pursuing. Yeah, and I know you may not be able to share. There are certain things you probably can't share, but tell us a little bit more about the unit that you fly for and the, the type of missions and the type of uh, units that you're working with. Uh, again, not to go into great detail, but just to give uh, some of our listeners who aren't as familiar with uh, the armed forces a sense of the, the type of combat that you guys would, would engage in. Yeah, for sure. The, so I flew Chinook helicopters at the time, the MH-47 Golf. Uh, in the unit, the 160th SOAR, um, we basically are uh, a unit that stood up back in the 80s um, out of a failed mission, a rescue attempt in Iran when the hostages were uh, being held. And so out of that operation, basically, the, the U.S. stood up a unit that would be able to perform very unique and specialized missions and have capabilities that may not be um, present day to day in the uh, in the conventional forces. And so. Um, from that, we've grown over the years, and uh, basically our, our mission is to support the elite special operation elements 
of our nation as well as partner nation forces. And so um, you can think of the, you know, down where you are, Andrew, in San Diego, you have the SEAL teams and um, right. and there are other elite organizations, the Rangers and um, uh, DevGrew and others that uh, that are exist in the world that, that we will support on missions uh, and we are the only aviation asset, basically rotary wing wise, that they call on to do that type of support. And so there are a lot more ground forces than there are aviation assets. And so we are in constant demand all over the globe to support our ground forces to get them in and out of the targets. So typically um, you guys are flying um, elite units such as the SEALs, U.S. Army Rangers, Special Forces. I mean, those are um, those are the the troops that you're transporting, and of course, they're going in on very, um, you know, high high uh, value missions, um, high levels of difficulty. And so, like you said, the, this unit, the 160th SOAR, the Night Stalkers, you guys are the Aviation Special Operations Unit. You've got that higher level of training, so that you can get those troops um, to those missions. And so, yeah, um, 18 so odd uh, deployments. And then let's talk a little bit about um, your deployment there in 2017 and the crash and just talk us through anything you want to share about that experience. And then also we'll talk about the the aftermath of that. Yeah. So this was, um, you, I hate to characterize any deployment as routine, but this was, I call this location where we were my timeshare because I had been there so many times. I might as well have bought property and uh, I was there visiting, but um, long and short, this, uh, this particular mission, we were in support of, of some partnered nation, special forces soldiers. And I was leading a flight of three MH-47s. Um, this particular mission, uh, we landed, picked up the ground force. And as we were transitioning into the village, um, this was a, we called them direct action raids. So there was actionable intelligence uh, that, that prompted a mission into this village. And so we were landing um, uh, extremely close. We were about 250 meters from, from the target building just at the edge of this village as we were infilling. And as we were transitioning in a flight of three Chinook helicopters, um, I was in the lead aircraft. And as I was maneuvering to land on final, um, we didn't know it at the time, but we were heavily engaged with a PKM. Essentially that's a, a Russian machine gun. It, it shoots linked 7.62 millimeter uh, ammunition. Um, and so it's a, a small machine gun that they were shooting uh, at our aircraft. And typically we have night vision goggles. We can see the tracer rounds, which every so often there's a round that has uh, basically it, it will burn and you can see it visibly as it flies mm -hmm. through the air. Um, well, they had pulled and delinked all of the tracer rounds out of their ammunition. And so we couldn't see any rounds in the air. Uh, and this particular um, armed combatant had pulled this PKM weapon system inside a mud hut, which helped suppress the muzzle flash. So it was very difficult to figure out where we were being shot from. We didn't even realize we were being engaged until the distinct uh, sound of, of 7.62 piercing through the sheet metal of the aircraft. And so as we essentially are entering the dust cloud, all this is going on. Um, and so my, my left side of my aircraft, we have some defensive weapon systems on the, on the Chinook, both a, a 240 as well as a minigun. And both of my left side crew members in the back 
started to immediately, as they were able to see the muzzle flash and identify positively the point of origin of that combatant, they started to engage as we entered the dust cloud. And so we were still maneuvering the helicopter, slowing down, getting on our final approach into the HLZ as we round out completely. Uh, it was one of those zero loom nights where we couldn't see anything, uh, didn't even see the HLZ, which wasn't uncommon at the time. Uh, so we transitioned to our, our, basically our instruments, our systems on the aircraft that we can complete the final portion of the approach. Um, and as we were transitioning into the instruments and completing the final portion, um, there was a little bit of oscillation that had developed from that enemy engagement, but we didn't assess it was anything significant at the time. Um, and basically, as we were landing into the HLZ to download our customers, we call them, it was the, the special forces team in the back of the aircraft, our customers. Um, as we were landing into the HLZ, about two feet from our aft gear touching the ground, um, we did hear and feel what felt like one of uh, our rotor blades contacted some some tree branches, some tree limbs. Uh, mm -hmm. In the HLZ we were landing to, um, hindsight, we, we were able to figure this out. We were slightly forward and to the right, and the HLZ was small. And mm -hmm. so we, that put us the, just the, on the edge. And the HLZ is, what is that, a uh, hot landing zone? What is the... No, sorry. Helicopter landing zone is, Helicopter uh, landing is zone. the HLZ. So it's a pre-planned point on the ground that we've already looked at. Uh, we've we've agreed with the ground force. That is the point mm -hmm. in which they will start their ground movement uh, to assault the, the objective area. So you're... You're landing uh, not only at night, but um, at a zero loom. Tell us a little bit more about that. Is that is that like no moon? What what makes it zero loom? Yeah, so the the zero loom does come from the lunar cycle, um, and in this particular evening, the moon didn't rise or set. There, it was not present in the sky. And you couple that basically with the fact that uh, in the U.S., it's it's hard to imagine what a, a moonless night looks like because we have so much ground light, so many places. Um, I would equate it to go into an inner room of your house in the middle of the night, shut off all the lights in the house and close your closet door. That's what zero loom in Afghanistan looks like. So it's, you're flying, you're flying this helicopter, you're coming into land. It's pitch black, dark. Um, you've got the dust cloud that's coming up. That's further obscuring. Even if there was light, um, you're being fired on and being struck, taking, taking hits. Um, and then you feel one of your rotor blades clip some tree limbs as you're, as you're coming in. So there's a lot going on here um, in, a, in a very short, compressed amount of time. Yeah, it was a little bit dynamic. And there was a simultaneous mission that was offset just over a kilometer north of our position with six other assets that were flying in. It was a simultaneous infill. Anyway, there was there was a lot going on. There were uh there were loom rockets being fired so that those assets could could get into their target and land. So uh there were a lot of assets overhead. There were there was a lot going on uh during this this phase of the mission. Yeah. Um and so as we as we touched down we we downloaded our assault force onto the target and they began their movement. Um, that's where basically um, we were going to link back up with our our company traffic, the two other helicopters that were infilling simultaneous with me as part of my flight. And we were going to then allow the ground force to conduct their actions on while we waited at a, a, a different location, refueled and, and were postured for any type of contingencies or exfil. 
Mm. Um, but that's not exactly how things went down. Um, so after we struck that tree branch, uh, after we had the engagement, um, essentially we didn't realize how severe the aircraft was damaged. And I don't know if we'll ever really deduce, mm. um, the, the actual, this was the, you know, the golden bullet, so to speak of specifically what happened. But the uh, crash looking backwards, um, basically they recreated it with our, our black box, uh, our, our recorder on the aircraft that they were able to recover after the, the crash. Uh, essentially, as we took off from infilling the ground force on that, that the helicopter landing zone, we got to uh, just over 100 feet. It was somewhere between 100 and 130 feet. And essentially, our after order system dynamically failed in flight. And uh, the unique aerodynamic tendency with the Chinook, you have two counter-rotating rotor systems that intermesh with one another. And so if you have one rotor system come apart, uh, essentially it will eat the other rotor system. And so without those, we we can't maintain uh, flight very long. And so essentially what happened, we we were along for the ride at that point. We, we fell from about a little over 100 feet into what ended up being the second story of the bazaar in this this village that the ground force was assaulting and the aircraft basically struck the second story as we were falling from the sky uh, it inverted upside down so now the rotors are underneath of us and the nose was basically perched like nose high up into the second story of the building um, and it instantly caught on fire and so now you have um all that's going on in the target, the engagement, the info of the ground force, and now you have a Chinook that's down on the target itself. So it was a it was a dynamic situation. Yeah, I mean, I know uh, I've heard this story first first person um, from you, and then um, I know you you also did a podcast that we'll, we'll link in uh, the show notes for this one, where you go into more detail on that um, on that whole experience, but. Um, so, so how did you get out? How, obviously you're here today. So take us from that moment where, okay, the, the aircraft has come to a stop. Um, how, how did it come about that you survived that and that, um, you got out of that situation? Yeah. So, um, one of the, one of the casualties of that, that incident was my co-pilot Jake Stims. He uh, he lost his life on impact when the aircraft went down. And I would say that uh, if you look at other uh, instances of, of a Chinook going down, like Extortion 1-7 and, and others uh, throughout um, different uh, engagements overseas, typically when a Chinook crashes, there's really not much left and most everyone on board dies. And so um, it was a miracle that only Jake lost his life that day because we had a crew of seven on board. And so um, six out of seven uh, were able to, some were walking and some were not, but uh, make it out of that crash. And, and that extraction started with our crew members in the back um, who regained consciousness and were able basically to, um, through just heroic acts, come back into a burning aircraft to, uh, to pull mm. their friends out, to pull the crew and the team uh, of that aircraft out. So um, that was... That was how we engage. Uh, we we survived the initial was really just our brothers that were on board uh, pulling us out, um, and then they set up a defensive perimeter, um, and then later linked up with the ground force, and then we were evacuated via helicopter out of that that area to to basically higher level care. So medical care was provided on the ground, and then later via 
follow up um, at the medical facilities in country. You talk about the heroics of um, your crewmates who who helped you and some of the others who were on board uh, escape that burning aircraft. And I think I remember before, how long do you, how long did it take, how long did they have to extract you guys from the aircraft? Yeah. So as the aircraft inverted um, and we, we went down, it it basically caught on fire almost immediately and it was burning. uh, So the engines and the rotors are now upside down. So the engines are on the ground um, and it has a bunch of fuel that's now nose high running back towards engines that are burning. Um, and so it basically started from the back of the aircraft, the ramp area, and moved forward to the cockpit. And so um, basically the entire cabin of our aircraft was fully engulfed in flames in about 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. So it was a the flash to bang on uh, on their recovery efforts was quick. And so mm-hmm. they all of their night vision goggles were were damaged. Um, no one on the crew had a set that made it survive the crash. So they're in zero loom, essentially, other than the flames that are essentially giving them some light to pull people out, Um, going back in to pull people out at their own, uh, you know, at the risk of their own life. Because at this point, we had rounds that started to, in the fire, cook off, and they were going off um, due to the the intense heat of the fire and, and where our weapon systems were placed on the aircraft. So definitely heroics on their part to come back and pull their brothers in arms out and uh, get us clear of that to set up a defensive perimeter. So Now you were one of those who they were able to, to pull out. What was your condition uh, at this point and, um, you know, going forward? Yeah. So I was conscious, not coherent. Um, I do have uh, some funny stories of when my buddy came and, and unhooked me and, and I kind of fell like a sack of potatoes from, from the aircraft and, uh, probably did a little bit of damage to my face, but I think overall um, I was in a pretty bad way. I, I had a traumatic brain injury, so I had um, a, a bleed in my prefrontal cortex and occipital lobe of my brain. So in the front and the back, I had uh, an internal bleed. Um, I had uh, my right eye. I think as my goggles crushed down, it basically crushed the whole right side of my my body, my face, my my ribs. So I had my, my right eye was popped open. It broke my nose, my upper and lower jaw. Um, it busted out a few teeth on the lower jaw. And then it also dug out a bunch of bone in the lower jaw. Um, I, I had broken 10 ribs um, where your, where your femur uh, attaches to your hip. It's called your acetabulum. It's that socket joint. Um, and basically my right hip at the acetabulum was shattered in, in a bunch of different pieces. I had a midline break in my right femur, and then I had a, just a bunch of contusions and other injuries, broken fingers and a laceration in my my right tibia, um, kind of my right shin area, just a huge laceration. So, um, yeah, I should have died just from the uh, the the acetabulum and the right femur fracture. Um, being right there next to arteries and and other things, I should have absolutely died. And the way the cockpit ripped away from me. Um, it literally ripped everything back to the point where it, it came right through. So like the pedal box under my feet, the cyclic between my legs, even my M4 strapped in behind me, um, mm. which is my, my weapons, uh, my personal weapon um, was all ripped out of the aircraft. So the fact that it ripped literally the aircraft out, the only thing that was left in that cockpit area where I was sitting was me upside down in the seat. And so mm. it's a miracle that uh, mm. uh, miracle of God that I survived it. Um, 
with the, you know, the injuries that I had. And then I survived the injuries as I was evacuated out of the country. Um, just to give you an idea of blood loss and other, I, I think they gave me, when I went back through my medical records, 12 units of blood prior to evac from theater. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not a medical technician, but I think your body holds about 11 or 12 units of blood. So they basically mm-hmm. gave me a full transfusion in the amount of time as they were patching me up to get me out. So, yeah, well, I know we went through that in detail and, and, uh, <laughs> just because I, I, I want people to, to understand just the severity of, of what you and those others went through. Um, and then the road to recovery. So I know you've shared with me before that you, you actually don't have, uh, memories of the crash itself or the aftermath. In fact, you have, uh, you have sort of a, um, a blank space of, of how many days? Yeah. So my memory cut off as we were lifting off. Um, so as we came out of that helicopter landing zone and we were taking off, essentially my brain shut off. Um, and I believe that's God's provision and protection. So mm-hmm. I don't have to relive some of the trauma that took place immediately after the, you know, the crash itself, as well as, uh, some of what took place on the ground and some of that immediate recovery. But, um, yeah, so I don't have an active memory from that point when I when I pulled pitch to take off uh, for about 16 days is when my brain finally rebooted. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's crazy. So you you go down on one side of the world and when you regain consciousness, were you at Walter Reed or w- which hospital were you at at that point? Yeah, so I had transitioned from uh, the in-country care and then I was evac to launch stool. Uh, from Launchstool, I was evac back to the U.S. where I landed at Andrews Air Force Base. Then I was transferred over to Walter Reed, which is in mm-hmm. Bethesda, Maryland. Um, and I was there for a short period of time. And due to the severity of, of my injuries, my hip, my acetabulum and my um, femur, they basically sent me down to University of Maryland, Baltimore, shock trauma. Um, and that's, I think, where you came to see me initially, yourself and Jamie. Um, but I was at, I was at that location to get the initial surgery to repair the hip and the femur. Um, and then from there I went back to Walter Reed. And so it was that full process and transfer had taken place. And I woke up one morning in the ICU at Walter Reed after all that had transpired. And it was almost like my brain had hard reset. It's almost, you know, Mm -hmm. when your computer starts to malfunction, you you reboot it. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's what happened with my brain. I, it rebooted in the morning and that's where. I have active memory from, and that's where I ask the questions of, um, you know, what happened? Where am I? Um, how's the crew? Uh, and that's where, you know, I feel like I started to occupy my own mind again. Although I was conscious and coherent and giving, you know, responses that you would expect prior to that, I have no memory or recollection. Mm. Man, we could probably talk for another hour, Brad. <laughs> but I know uh, one of the things that you and I discussed wanting to to talk about in this conversation is just, I guess, the road since then. And in particular, um, you know, how you've dealt with things like, um, or, or have you? Like, I'll, I'll say, like, not only are you one of, like, I'm sure you have, but see, like, you're one of the most high achieving guys I know, but you're also... Um, one of the most positive people I know. So I, I, I'm actually really curious, like how, how did you work through um, frustration, sorrow, disappointment? Like 
questions, questions of God, you know, um, or even just, just the, the, the pain and the arduous path of recovery, because you look great, man. Like you're on the show today and, uh, you know, but six years ago you were, you were rough, man. <laughs> I mean, you had, a, you had a tough go and uh, it's, it's just a testament to, you know, God's grace, modern medicine, a lot of amazingly talented people who, uh, help with the rehab. Um, and then I would just say you're in Carrie's own resilience and hard work. Um, but yeah, like what are some of the things when you think over the last six years and, you know, mentally and spiritually that you've, you've wrestled with, um, on this road to recovery, uh, what are some of the things that, that stand out to you? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, like you said, I could probably talk about what God has taught me over through this experience for another hour, at least. Um, I tried to, to narrow this focus down a bit, but uh, I probably will still run long. Um, (laughs) I would say that uh, um, one of the things that I really saw play out, uh, which is clear from just the crash itself is that God is still uh, in the miracle business. I think it is a, a miracle that that anyone walked away from that aircraft to the point where when the ground force eventually made their way to us, they thought they were going to be conducting a, a full recovery. They mm-hmm. didn't think anyone had made it out alive, uh, which is how severe the crash itself was. So um, the other thing that I, I learned is God, yes, he does miracles, but I think sometimes and most times he uses the ordinary people uh, to help really uh, encourage and, and transform people in ways that only God can. And so um, mm-hmm. a verse that really, I think, stood out to me uh, in the recovery process was Galatians 6, 9, and 10. Uh, it says, do not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time you will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And so my wife and I were were the benef- benefactors of of God's love demonstrated and in practicality through people. Um, Immediately after the crash, my wife was descended upon. uh, And I do say that uh, (laughs) literally by our ministry, by women that she was both pouring into and being encouraged by. And they stayed with her from the moment that she found out until she flew out to meet me in Germany. Um, we, we were the benefactors of just a myriad of support from our, our local community. Um, there's a lot of people that say they believe in luck and, and I am not one of those. I think that God is in control of all things. And so I'm just going to run down a very brief, uh, just case in point. Uh, I can't, I, I couldn't as a flight lead, uh, as you mentioned, we, we have uh, very complex missions where we try to synchronize and calculate fuel to the pound and time to the second. Uh, and I could not have planned what, what transpired after this crash. So, um, let me, let me just quickly recap. Uh, there was a guy in country that I had been meeting with and trying to, to help walk with the Lord. His name was Sean Flynn. And I had arranged for him to be on a transport that I was planning to take out the very next day, him, as well as a certain amount of people from his unit. And so they had transitioned to our location in theater um, the night of the crash because they were going to fly out with us the very next day. And uh, so rather than flying out with us the next day, him as well as one of the guys he was discipling uh, at his outstation in that same theater, 
they were standing outside the medical facility where I was being operated on praying. Um, and so I don't think I would have been able to, to arrange that myself. Uh, two friends who I had met the year prior during a trip to Fort Rucker uh, also was encouraged by and in fellowship in the Lord with they were uh, they had moved on from there and they happened to both be in different units. One was a state sign unit that was on a nine month trip or deployment and the other was stationed in Germany. But two separate commands, two separate guys were able to from their commands to drive down while I was at launch stool and pray over me. Um, there was an army chaplain that was there at launch stool who is known by the NAVs, actually a friend of Mike Chong's, who was the local Levite, the, the leader of the ministry there at Fort Lewis, who you handed it over to at the time. Um, she was there at launch stool. Uh, she knew I was a believer. She was able to pray over me and my wife, uh, who came and my sister. Um, it was just amazing how God just orchestrated. Uh, I was delayed due, due to my intracranial pressure in my brain, uh, from leaving launch stool. And so that delay ended up causing me to leave out without my team left ahead of me, basically the other members of my crew. But uh, so I ended up flying out on a, on a KC-135, which is a big refuel tanker for the Air Force. And I landed at Andrews Air Force Base, as I had mentioned previously. And the first face that my wife saw as the door of the plane opened at Andrews Air Force Base is Myra Liu, who was... Uh, our former flight surgeon at 4th Battalion and next door neighbor, uh, hmm. who wow. she knew very, very well. And so that was the first face who walks on the plane and gives her a big hug. And it just so happened that since we he was our next door neighbor, he had moved on to a medical broadening assignment there in the D.C. area. And one day out of every six weeks, he's on Andrews Air Force Base conducting rounds. And that happened to be the day that we landed at Andrews. Call it luck. I, I so don't. This, this was your neighbor in Washington State who had then gotten transferred to Washington, D.C. and just happened to be working that shift. Yep. He was he was at that facility on his one day every six weeks that he's at that facility. Um, wow. Again, God just arranged some miracles. Um, wow. A, a former friend, uh, as well as believer in Christ, Damian Calvert, he was actually my former company commander. He had been stationed at the Pentagon uh, the year prior. And so he, he's a, a fellow believer in Christ. And him and his wife and their daughter would come visit us at Walter Reed every Sunday just to be with us and encourage us uh, and just continue mm -hmm. to. And these are just a few of the myriad of ways that God just used people really to be his arms and feet and really just love us and continue to provide comfort and care in ways that, you know, we, we needed at the time and we would not have been able uh, on our own to, to, to dream up or even, you know, coordinate. So. Yeah. That's amazing, man. Yeah. I, I, I would say like, it, so I haven't ever experienced this from you, but did you, did you ever question God? Like why, why God, did you let this happen? Um, how did you deal with, were there times that you despaired? Because, you know, I know it was a very long road to recovery and one that you're actually still on, but you've made such strides since those early months and years. Um, and how did, if so, how did you process that? How did, how did, what, what keeps someone, what enables someone to have gratitude versus bitterness when they go through a difficulty like that? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, Andrew. And I, I did. I, I definitely struggled early on. Um, as I woke up, 
I'm a pilot. I can't see out of my right eye. I'm blind now. Um, my body's crushed. I don't know. I like, so without having vision in one eye, I don't even meet army retention standards. And so mm. my future, when I woke up at Walter Reed was very much in limbo of, you know, how am I going to be able to continue? You know, what door is God going to open? What does my future look like? And so I would say that, you know, one of the things God did is he really humbled me. Um, and I would say uh, he he tested me. Um, you know, there's there's some verses in, in Deuteronomy where God led the people of Israel through the desert for 40 years to test to see what was in their heart. Mm. And so I feel like there are situations that come around, even in the lives of believers, that uh, will test uh, our our faith and our perseverance in the Lord. And so um, I do believe my resiliency is tied back to my relationship in Jesus because he is all that matters. And so if I am not rooted in him, I am going to really hmm. struggle with what was me, what was my current circumstance and situation. Um, and so I really, you know, there are verses I think that I use to provide um, solace and, and encouragement to me. And Jesus used them in, in difficult times in the disciples' life that he was training. So one of which I think uh, John 16, 33 he says, I have told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so I think uh, that just really gave me a perspective that it's it's more than just about my circumstance, my situation. Um, and I need, to, I need to have peace in Christ and take heart and know that he is in control. Um, and no matter what. As long as I am focused on him, whatever is going to come on this side of heaven is is going to come. And I can be assured that he is with me. Uh, you know, although he sent a lot of people to be his hands and feet in the life of my wife and I, he right. was with me every step of the way. And so that I think for me, really, I had to preach it to myself hmm. over and over. Hmm. But I think that really helped keep me positive and keep me in the right frame of mind to not become negative um, and really keep me oriented on Jesus. And so it wasn't easy. There were definitely days that were harder than others. Hmm. Um, one of which I was, one of my good friends uh, flew in from Boston, uh, former uh, platoon leader and, and now commander um, came to visit and, and we went and dropped him off at the Metro. He was going to take the Metro to get his flight and fly back. And I was crutching on the way back into our, our, our building and it was snowy and icy. And, and as I got onto this floor in this, in this building we were living in, one of my crutches flew out from underneath of me. And so I took a tumble, I landed, I tried to shield myself the best I could. I wasn't bearing any weight on my right leg. Everything's broken and damaged, but uh, we ended up in the hospital again in the ER at this point for a little over five hours. And, and, you know, those days aren't fun when you're having to go mm -hmm. get the hip that they just put back together, re-x-rayed because you mm -hmm. just fell on it. Um, mm -hmm. But I think those are the the times where you really have to rely and, and dig deep uh, and really rely on Jesus to, to mm -hmm. keep your, your frame of reference oriented on the things that matter. And so mm -hmm. I actually convinced my wife to, to go eat dinner with me in our room before we went to the ER that I'd be fine. And so uh, she's a nurse and was not happy about that, but she uh, she conceded uh, to oh, at least man. have a full meal before we sat through the <laughs> ER for five hours to get x-rays. So. Oh, bro. So um, 
I wanted to ask you this. How, how this is another big question? So we'll see. It may be something that you, uh, you the answer may come right to mind or, or not, but you were a certain person, you know, before that mission in, you know, 2017, you know, how has the experience and the suffering and, and, and all that you've been through and, you know, we're just scratching the surface of your story, you know, you and Carrie, your wife is a cancer survivor, which she was diagnosed with after your crash. So I've watched you guys go through so much over the past five, six years, um, you know, enough suffering for multiple people over a lifetime. Um, and I just, I know that that kind of, one, that's not wasted. God's, God's using that um, for a purpose. You know, that's what Paul says in, in Romans, you know, that um, suffering produces endurance and endurance does its work in our lives. Um, how have you changed? How have you and Carrie changed? Are you able to, to begin to see some of the ways that you're a different person today than you were back in 2017? Yeah, that's, that's probably the toughest question you put uh, as we were prepping for this. And, and I don't know if I have a succinct answer, but uh, yeah. I would say that uh, as far as, as far as that goes, I'll try to answer this question the best I can. Uh, I, I am a different person in, in a lot of ways. Some was just as a direct result of the crash, the TBI um, that I, uh, they basically assessed as moderate to severe. And those closest to you, um, most of my friends probably don't really notice much different about me, but my wife definitely has seen a difference. Um, I'm having to relearn patience. I'm having to relearn um, communication and things, ways that I connect and relate with my wife, which I'm still, as you mentioned, um, we are still working on on those areas of just continuing to grow together. And, and I guess it's really finding out what our new normal is, right? So um, I feel like God, uh, as we, as we look back, I think the two big questions that I think God challenged me with, uh, through the past five years, the first one was, do you trust me with your life? Um, as the crash happened and he, and he miraculously saved me, I felt like when I was in the hospital room, that was the question. Mm -hmm. Um, and I really feel like, you know, I answered that question. Yes, God, I trust you with my life. It was, it was a, uh, there was not a, a big wrestle. I was like, yes, I, I, and I, I, I'm thankful to God that uh, you always say that you will have faith in those circumstances and situations, um, but you don't really know until you're thrust into it. And so mm. I thank God that he uh, sustained what faith I thought I had prior to uh, to actually getting into that. And I think, you know, not to dovetail into a whole nother subject, but I think our relationship with the Lord prior to this event happening and our intentionality to build that relationship really is what built into the perseverance and, and the ability to, to sustain or to, to sustain underneath of these circumstances. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and the second question I feel like God really challenged me with was, um, do you trust me with your wife's life? And that one, man, that threw me for a loop. Uh, and, and I say that in mm. at, at about the year anniversary of the crash, as I'm working to get back in the cockpit, I, I became permanently grounded and I'm trying to go through the medical process to get back in the cockpit and fly. My wife was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. And so that was, uh, that one floored me far worse than the crash did and all the hmm. physical. Um, I struggled with the Lord for a few weeks, probably six to seven weeks hmm. with that. And, uh, that was really, um, that was a wrestle match, um, of, 
that was a lot harder. And I think mm-hmm. that really stretched me more was do I, do I trust the Lord with, the, with Carrie's life? And so that really, I think, um, cemented in me just a, a trust in God's faithfulness uh, and, and knowing that he can be trusted with, mm-hmm. you know, anything and everything. And it's easy, again, it's easy to say it's a lot harder when it happens to, mm-hmm. to walk. And that's why I wrestled so much with my flesh in that decision of really giving that over to the Lord. And so I feel like that's really grown me. Um, and so, although I do have some, some different things interpersonally with how I relate, how I connect and how God's continuing to refine certain aspects of the crash, I feel like it just deepens my faith and reliance on the Lord in areas that before may have been superficial, that through the situations that we encountered really became um, practical. I had to, I had to humble myself and give it to the Lord. And so um, it has grown Carrie and I quite a bit because we've had to rely really on, on the grace of the Lord and on his provision uh, in these circumstances and situations uh, and he's come through each and every time because he can be trusted mm-hmm. just because, you know, we've had positive outcomes. It does not mean that that equates to the faithfulness of God. I think even if, you know, I never would have flown again or, um, you know, wh- whatever that might have looked like, I think God is still faithful and can be trusted. And so uh, it's a choice to to continue to seek him. And I think it's really built into my relationships, my intentionality. Um, and one thing I didn't mention that that I, I probably should is uh, the boldness in pursuing Jesus and the boldness in proclaiming the kingdom. Um, a man's days are numbered like in Joan 14. And so I, I think really it's I, I've learned to count my days and really take advantage of things and not let opportunities pass. And so one of, and that was cemented um, my co-pilot, Jake, uh, as a flight lead. I chose to fly with him. Um, because I didn't think he was a believer. And I was able to talk with Jake about his faith prior to that crash. And really, um, who I thought was an atheist found out that he, based on what he knew of Christ, was making decisions in his life yeah. to live a life of uh, of consideration and honor to what he knew of Jesus. And yeah. so for me, that gave me a sense of peace when I found out that Jake did not make it home and that he is walking with the Lord today and he does not have pain. And so I think, you know, taking advantage of those opportunities because not everybody's deployed in combat. I got it. But you don't Mm. know when your coworker or when your loved one is going to, you know, walk out of the house and get hit by a car or, you know, life, life happens. Life happens to believers and unbelievers. And so taking advantage uh, and counting our days and just trying to make the most of them. So I would say those are probably the ways that God has um, challenged me. And we continue both Carrie and I to grow and, and try to be a little bit more intentional and trust and lean into God. So, yeah, I mean, just some thoughts there that as you were sharing your know, life that, that struck me is, you know, th- just this truth that life is a gift. Um, and every day it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a meme, but it's the, it's the hourglass, the sands of the hourglass, you know, like it's a gift, but it, it's, it's passing, you know, for each of us, you know, we're, we're one day uh, closer to the time when our race on this earth ends um and so just that perspective and and enjoying life but also taking life serious that that god has entrusted us with this gift and and life isn't always easy in fact oftentimes it's difficult and so um you know just having that perspective that that it's a gift from god 
but there's also difficulties and your, your life and the way you've lived it, um, since I've known you, it, it does remind me of the verses at the end of Matthew seven, where Jesus talks about those who hear the words of Jesus and act on them will be like a, a man who, who built his life on the solid rock. And when those storms of life came, it, it withstood the, uh, the difficulties and, and the turmoil. So, man, I really, uh, I appreciate you coming on and, uh, sharing with us. Uh, I don't know if there's any final thoughts that you want to uh, leave our, our uh, audience with. I, th- I think you covered a lot of great stuff. So. Yeah. Uh, I think, man, there's, there's so many things I, I skipped over a few. The, the one that I think in hindsight really stands out the most is, um, although we didn't realize it at the time, our intentionality in pursuing a relationship with Jesus is really what built our resiliency. As you mentioned, and mm. um, the foundation was built on Christ. And so I, I think, uh, you know, verses like uh, Paul writing the church of Corinth and first Corinthians nine, uh, 26 and 27, mm. it really lends to that. Like, therefore I do not run like a man running aimlessly. Mm. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. And I think that uh, there's an intentionality of living life and pursuing Jesus that is going to build that foundation that we can weather the storm of life. Um, and and really, I think I mentioned it early on, but we want to serve and build the kingdom so that uh, when when God comes to give account, he will, he will refer to how we're doing that and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so um, I'm nothing without him and, and just trying to steward the things that he's given me in a way that would bring him honor. And so that's really the, the pursuit and love God and love people. That's awesome, man. It was definitely something that stood out to me when you were sharing. Um, I, I hope folks picked up on it, but, but yes, you know, the, the time to prepare for the difficult days is in the good days. And so, you know, a lot of us may have a, a hard time identifying with uh, your experience and the level of uh, difficulty and suffering that you've been through in recent years. And yet we can follow your example of, you know, seeking the Lord, going deep in the scriptures, going deep in relationships with other believers who are going to encourage us to, uh, to live for the things that really matter. Um, and if God and his sovereignty does allow us to go through those difficult times, you know, those investments that we've made during the good times, so to speak, it sounds like that's what you're saying, that you, you believe that that really set the foundation and, and set the stage. And it goes back. I know you said, let's not grow weary in doing good. You know, those verses out of uh, Galatians. Um, but, you know, he talks about reaping what you sow. And it's it's definitely a testimony to to walk with God in the good times and um, you'll be more drawn to trust him and in, in the difficulties. So man, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on, Brad. Uh, would love to have you on again in the future and we'll just talk about life and ministry. And I know you're actively making disciples these days. So, um, I really appreciate your example, brother. And I appreciate you being on today. Likewise, Andrew, thanks for the time. I really appreciate it. 